What I'm trying to do here is to point out that every power source interacts with nature and human civilization in a way that can be disruptive and even dangerous for generations to come. Nuclear energy is far from uniquely dangerous killer that decades of lobbying have made it out to be. The Rational View is a weekly series hosted by me, Dr. Alan Scott, providing a rational, evidence-based perspective on important societal issues. Produced by Soapbox Media. Hello and welcome to another episode of The Rational View. I'm your host, Dr. Al Scott. In this episode, I want to address what I've come to realize is a basic fundamental asymmetry in society's approach to energy technologies, and most specifically nuclear energy. We've spent the last several decades experiencing mostly unopposed anti-nuclear lobbying, with nuclear supporters being silent or absent from the discussion. Uh, browbeat nuclear workers uh, unwilling to, to raise their heads or, or even participate in the online uh, discussion due to the uh, mass approbation of the majority. Nuclear energy has had to struggle on an uneven playing field with other energy technologies because of this holdover from the anti-nuclear weapons uh, protests of the 60s and 70s, which were very successful and, and, and very important, but then spilled over uh, into a throw the baby out with the bathwater type of anti-nuclear power um, dominant ideology. And it's, it's this asymmetry, which is one of the leading reasons that new nuclear reactors have struggled to be built in regions that have been dominated by anti-nuclear ideologies for the past several decades. And it's this situation that has catalyzed the entire climate crisis. If you like what you're hearing, please press like on your podcast app, share it with your friends, and come talk to me on my Facebook group, The Rational View. Nuclear energy is the only energy source to which humanity applies the precautionary principle. The precautionary principle is don't do anything or restrict anything unless you're sure it will not cause damage. In other words, do not proceed until you have proof. And if we know from my other podcasts, science does not provide proof. All it does is it provides increasingly massive reams of evidence of uh, what we can best predict is going to happen in, in the universe. So scientists never actually provide proof. So the precautionary principle, by implementing the precautionary principle in nuclear energy, effectively you are preventing progress or you are preventing any way to go forward because there's always a, but what if that you can add? Other power sources, all other power sources are allowed to operate with a certain level of known risk. And then in some cases, this is, in some cases, this translates into a rather significant body count. But since we're used to uh, the status quo and the energy system that we have now and the effects of, of some of this pollution is, is typically distributed over large areas and not concentrated in one area, the asymmetry with nuclear policy is lost on the general public. Of all these energy sources, nuclear energy seems to be the only one 
that elicits a, a visceral fear reaction in a significant fraction of the populace. Nuclear energy regulations, costs, and public discourse center on the ALERA principle for radioactive releases. ALERA is an acronym which means as low as reasonably achievable. That's ALERA. So in other words, nuclear facilities are not built until they can guarantee that they won't cause damage under the worst possible conditions imaginable. And the impact of radiation has to be limited to as low as reasonably achievable. Not, and, and note, this is different from any other power source which says uh, it shouldn't do noticeable damage. And there's a big difference between not doing measurable damage and as low as reasonably achievable. Because as low as reasonably achievable, we can measure nuclear radiation down to, you know, single atomic nuclei uh, disintegrating, single disintegrations we can measure. So we can measure this orders of magnitude more precisely than what would cause any harm. So to give an idea of the scale of how this problem has affected nuclear reactors and nuclear technology, the U.S. Nuclear Regulatory Commission, which is the body which is in charge of regulating uh, new builds of nuclear reactors and the ongoing nuclear reactor mm -hmm. fleet in the U.S., the NRC's guidance document for applications is 4,500 pages long. Um, startup companies like NewScale looking for to develop small modular reactions, their application for a small modular reactor license was 12,000 pages and took more than 10 years to develop at a cost of over $500 million. Many non-government organizations have argued that no amount of radiation is safe and they've lobbied with the support of fossil fuel money that nuclear must be saddled with these extra regulations because of its intrinsic and special mode of damaging uh, health. But because of this extreme focus on tech safety that engineers in the industry have played along with because they're getting paid to do this, because nuclear energy does generate a lot of money and energy is necessary, Nuclear energy has now come to have the lowest body count of all humanity's power sources by orders of magnitude. No other energy source is held to this level of scrutiny, even though the evidence suggests that millions of people die prematurely from other less regulated energy sources. Is this a rational situation? This is the sort of reason why I started this podcast. The, the lack of rational risk uh, assessment in public and in, in politics and in our, our, our policies is killing people. The worst offender, of course, in this field is fossil fuel burning, especially coal, killing on the order of 8 million people every year worldwide. And this has been widely reported um, thanks to uh, a multi-decadal effort by the scientific community and the ongoing popularization of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change reports, 
I think the majority of the population now realizes that we need to find a safer, non-polluting, non-carbon emitting alternative, and rather quickly in uh, terms of other um, developments in our energy policy. So to determine the most rational way forward, the most rational answer to the question of what we should be doing we need to make sure that we have a level of playing field and that we're not looking at the options through a skewed lens. How did we get to the point that approving a new gas plant that we know will kill people through smog? We know burning natural gas creates smog, which exacerbates lung disease and, and asthma and kills people. We know that it will contribute to climate change, which is somewhat unquantifiable in the amount of deaths that will result in the amount of damage to agriculture and ecosystems. It's difficult to quantify, but it's easier and quicker to approve a new gas plant than approving a nuclear plant that kills orders of magnitude fewer people per kilowatt hour of delivered electricity. This is a skewed lens. This is an unequal playing field. Now, one might argue, and you know, I've listened to the arguments against nuclear energy, that this increased level of focus on nuclear reactors is needed and is required because nuclear poses a unique potential for environmental contamination. It's a very localized, high-density energy source which has... Uh, radionuclides stored on site, which can get out into the environment and can cause damage to ecosystems and biology. And to a certain extent, yes, this is a risk. We have seen the big three examples of T Three Mile Island, uh, Chernobyl, and Fukushima brought to bear on every possible attempt to improve the safety of our power system and the cleanliness of our energy grids. What other power technology could cause entire towns to be evacuated and thousands of hectares of land to become uninhabitable? Of course, we're all aware of disasters where the oil and gas industry continues to devastate entire towns. In Canada, there was the Megantic Rail disaster where rail cars full of uh, oil uh, crashed into the town and caught fire and killed uh, you know, 24 people or something along those lines. We know about uh, the Exxon Valdez oil spill. We know about the Deep Horizons Gulf uh, disaster, which uh, devastated an entire ecosystem. So, yeah, nuclear isn't alone in its potential to cause environmental contamination. But I'm wondering if you've ever thought when you hear these arguments against nuclear power of hydroelectricity. New dams have caused mass displacements of entire peoples, but these have been mostly in indigenous areas. Think about the James Bay projects in, in Quebec. Uh, think about some of the developments in, in Canada's north. These don't seem to get as much focus as, for example, the forced evacuation of a European city as a result of the Chernobyl meltdown and fire. Furthermore, dams cause loss of habitat and, and impact migrational uh, species migrations, even when they're working properly. Whereas Chernobyl retains the title as being the only nuclear reactor that should have resulted in an evacuation for safety purposes. We've looked at the uh, post hoc 
uh, radiation levels from the Fukushima meltdown, and it shows that evacuation was not necessary due to radiation. The, the, the life expectancy losses due to the evacuation itself were higher than anything that could have happened from the amount of radiation that was released from the Fukushima plants. And this is even assuming uh, a linear no-threshold model where every uh, radioactive decay has a linear chance, a linear uh, proportional chance of causing cancer, life-ending cancer. So even in that case, evacuation was worse than staying. And the, you know, you can go look up the data. It's the NREF study by uh, Professor Phil Thomas uh, on the J value. Uh, and I've, I have a, an earlier interview with Professor Thomas. If you want to look it up, it was really insightful. And I learned a lot from that. So now almost 40 years after the Chernobyl disaster, the initial dangerous Radioactivity in that area has mostly decayed away, and the region has become a, a thriving wildlife reserve. Uh, scientists, ecologists are studying this area as the most undisturbed uh, wildlife area in Europe, and uh, large species have come back and repopulated it. There's no evidence of of health effects from from the residual radiation. So, I'm not going to suggest that this is an intentionally racist asymmetry. But if we only counter intentionally racist policies, we would not have made much progress towards equality and reconciliation as a society. So I think we need to make sure that rational risk assessment and policy is in place and that we look at all of our power systems with the same lens. Let's not just have the fear lens or the foggy fear lens around when we focus on nuclear and not look at the effects of other power systems that have equally devastating effects when they're working properly. I mean, let's take solar energy as an example. Uh, it's seen as, as non-destructive and, and in tune with nature and green, and it never hurts anyone, and it's wonderful. And yet uh, cities in China are protesting the, the dumping of solar uh, panel waste and the poisoning of the environment in, in China. Due to a, its extremely low energy density, solar panels need to have an area about the same size as the Chernobyl exclusion zone, need to be cleared and of wildlife and trees uh, and covered with silicon panels in order to produce as much energy as the Chernobyl nuclear station was producing. So you can see that solar panels operating normally have the same ecological effect as a nuclear station when it goes meltdown. And again, this is for solar panels working normally. Nuclear energy does not measurably displace habitat in all cases but one, and that one only temporarily. The ecological risks of unabated growth of solar farms are substantial. It's just a land use problem. To keep their costs low, solar power developers in California have been using mostly undeveloped desert lands with sensitive wildlife habitat as sites for new solar power installations, rather than building on less sensitive, previously developed open lands. Now, I'm not saying that solar panels are bad. Solar panels have their place, they have a use, uh, they're, they're very applicable in remote areas where you, you can't 
build nuclear for the need, uh, you know, of small settlements, that sort of thing, uh, where you can afford solar and batteries, it's great. Nuclear reactor operators are regulated to account for every last bit of radiation associated with their plants. Every last bit of radiation that they put out has to be monitored and accounted for. Radioactive emissions to the atmosphere are so tightly constrained, several orders of magnitude below the level where we have any evidence of, of harm due to the Alara principle. Among other published material on the subject, the Radiological Society of North America and the American Association of Physicists in Medicine issued a well-respected position statement in 2011. And here's what it says. I'm going to read it to you. Risks of medical imaging at effective doses below 50 millisieverts for single procedures or 100 millisieverts for multiple procedures over short periods are too low to be detectable and may be non-existent. Predictions of hypothetical cancer incidents and deaths in patient populations exposed to such low doses are highly speculative and should be discouraged. So I want to repeat those numbers to you. 50 millisieverts of sudden dose for single procedures. So a sievert is a measure of, of the deposited ionizing radiation dose in a body. Or 100 millisieverts for multiple procedures over a short period of time. So 0.1 sieverts. To put this in perspective, um, you get you can get radiation sickness if you have whole body doses on the order of three or four sieverts. So a tenth of a sievert over a relatively short period of time is safe. Three or four millisieverts are where you start getting sudden radiation sickness and potential for death for from the radiation itself. This isn't from cancer. Now, if we look at cancer studies of radiation, no measurable effects have been encountered for levels of sudden exposure below 100 millisieverts or 0.1 sieverts. No one has ever been able to have a study which has a, a linear correlation below 0.1 sieverts. So I'm, I'm giving you kind of the, the ballpark area for what we know. So how does this affect uh, people with nuclear plants or with uh, nuclear medicine or, or radiation studies? <clears throat> so I looked online, and the first one that came up was uh, a nuclear facility at the University of Pittsburgh for one of several potential examples. They have dosimeter badges where they measure the accumulated dose on people working there. And if you get an annual accumulated dose of 15 millisieverts, only 15 millisieverts, 0 0.015 sieverts, it triggers a quote-unquote level two investigation by a staff physicist to identify and mitigate the source of exposure. And this is like the natural background level of radiation uh, in certain places on Earth, like residents of Kerala, India, for example, uh, which actually shows, incidentally, shows the lower level of cancer incidence than average around the globe. And their, their, their radioactive background natural, naturally ranges from about 40 to 70 millisieverts per year. But remember, the, the doses where, where measured effects happen are 100 millisieverts and above 
for a single all at once dose. So if you were to get 100 millisieverts over the course of a year, it can be argued that your cells are going to regenerate themselves within that time period and not have any effects. And in fact, many people do argue that. Uh, the cell cycle is about five or six hours uh, for the cells to uh, split and get a new set of DNA. And if there's anything wrong with the DNA, they will uh, kill themselves, they, they self-immolate, I forget what the term is. Uh, but effectively, the time scale for a sudden dose is five or six hours. And we're talking about limiting doses of 100 millisieverts over a year. Not five or six hours. But the, the medical establishment has said, you can have you know, 50 millisieverts in a single dose, and there's no, no likelihood that anything will happen measurably. Your risk of cancer isn't going to measurably increase. So the skewed lens of radiophobia has resulted in irrational and dangerous public policy and much unnecessary suffering and loss of life. Following the Fukushima Daiichi meltdowns, Japanese authorities evacuated areas with estimated annual radioactive dose exposure rates between 20 and 100 millisieverts. This is well within the range of effects may be non-existent. Following this evacuation, they took numerous steps to decontaminate the areas affected by fallout from the reactor accident. In the long term, they aimed to reduce the additional external radiation composer due to the accident to a maximum of one millisievert per year. Not one millisievert per hour, one millisievert per year through a massively expensive program, hundreds of billions of dollars equivalent, where they bulldoze and bag the valuable topsoil from one of the richest farming areas in Japan. Is this rational? The irony is that the UN uh, panel reviewing radiation, the UNSCEAR, has stated that there have not been and are not expected to be any deaths as a result of the Fukushima radiation release. Now, admittedly, some mitigation is necessary for the hottest areas. You certainly don't want to be eating foods that have concentrated uh, certain radioactive compounds. You need to avoid radioactive iodine, which has a, a half-life of eight days after the reaction. So the first month, you have to be careful of drinking milk from cows that are eating grass in the vicinity. You have to take your iodine tablets if you're living in that area. After the first month, the iodine is not an issue. You're not going to get thyroid cancer if you've avoided these things for one month. So you avoid certain foods for one month, and then you have to worry about uh, other uh, dangerous things that can rate can bioaccumulate like uh, uh, strontium uh, and uh, cesium, and these things can build up in your bones and they have longer half lives on the order of thirty years. Uh, but the fact is that we know what to avoid. Very simple uh, mitigation methods can be put in place uh, to protect us. Now, yes, this is a disaster. This is a costly cleanup over a, a relatively localized area. And this happens with a lot of different things when we deal with it. And it's not good. 
But this was also the fourth largest earthquake in history, followed by a 40-meter tsunami wave. So let's put it into perspective. 20,000 people died as a result of the natural disaster. Nobody died as a result of the radiation release. Why do we have this visceral fear? The impacts of the Fukushima Daiichi meltdown were felt well beyond the shores of Japan. Countries around the world shut down their clean nuclear fleets for years while they uh, went through costly safety reviews. Researchers looking at this, what they call radiophobia, have shown that over 28,000 people likely died in the six years after the Fukushima accident due to increased fossil fuel emissions resulting from the nuclear fleet shutdowns in just Germany and Japan. So more people died from radiophobia than from the fourth largest earthquake in history and a 40-meter tsunami. Let's imagine applying these same precautionary safety standards to the fine particulate emission or the soot from burning of fossil fuels, quantified as PM 2.5. And that's, I guess, particulate matter with an average diameter of two and a half microns. So very small particles in soot that you breathe in and they come down into your lungs and they kill you. Researchers around the world uh, are relatively agreed that only 10 micrograms per cubic meter of this soot will increase in, in a 12-month average uh, prior to your death, increases your all-cause mortality by 5%. So if you're breathing in 10 micrograms in air that has 10 micrograms per cubic meter of these small particles, it increases uh, your chance of death by 5%. So this is measurable. This is agreed on. This is higher risk of death than 100 millisieverts of dose from radiation, which is not measurable. Okay? So, and, and we know that the Fukushima area was evacuated due to um, something like 20 to 50, or 20 to 100 millisieverts of annual dose of radiation, where the health impacts are not measurable. In 2018, out of over 3,000 cities assessed, 64% exceeded the WHO's annual exposure guide guideline for PM 2.5. 100% of measured cities within the Middle East and Africa exceeded the, the health exposure guideline. 99% of cities in South Asia, 95% of cities in Southeast Asia, and 89% of cities in East Asia also exceeded the particulate target. The, the World Health Organization estimates that 9 out of 10 people worldwide are now breathing unsafe polluted air, based on the 2018 World Air Quality Report. 90% of the population is breathing in fossil fuel pollution that causes increase in mortality. If we had rational policy and reacted to the same levels of health risk due to air pollution as we do to radiation, 
then we would be looking for safe, soot-free places to evacuate 90% of the world's population. We would have non-government organizations saying 90% of the world is a wasteland, uninhabitable. We know that people who were evacuated from Fukushima, some of them went to Tokyo, where there are higher than 10 micrograms per cubic meter of PM 2.5. So we know that anyone who evacuated from Fukushima to Tokyo decreased their life expectancy because of the fossil fuel pollution in Tokyo. Tokyo should have been evacuated first because of the fossil fuel pollution. Think of that. We have a skewed lens. What if we applied the Alara principle to methyl mercury and fish from hydro reservoirs? Mercury is everywhere in the environment. It's emitted by burning of fossil fuels again. So it settles on the plants. It settles on the dirt. For the most part, it's not biologically active and it's kind of dispersed. This silent killer gets activated by microorganisms when it's submerged in a hydro reservoir, turning it into biologically active methyl mercury and concentrating it. It concentrates in the food chain now. As you might be aware, it's a powerful neurotoxin uh, that gets into the food chain and builds up in fish that are eating these microorganisms. And it can cause significant health impacts, uh, especially on uh, unborn children uh, and children where their brains are developing. <clears throat> this is especially a problem on Aboriginal people living in the area who subsist on fish-based diets. People eating fish from hydro dams are told they need to limit their intake to prevent health effects. Does this sound familiar to you? Does it sound somewhat familiar to what people tell you not to do after a nuclear plant melts down? This is, again, is a hydro reservoir working as it's supposed to compared to a nuclear reactor that's melted down. Nuclear reactors that operate properly don't have this problem. What do you think would happen to the cost of hydroelectricity if we required all hydro dam operators to capture all the methylmercury and bury it in a deep geological repository like we do with nuclear waste? What would happen to the cost of this cheapest of power sources? Mercury is an element that remains toxic forever. It doesn't decay away to background levels. What kind of hoops would we make hydroelectric dam operators jump through to ensure that none of this permanently deadly neurotoxin could endanger the lives of future generations hundreds of thousands of years in the future. Why don't we do that? Why is it only nuclear waste that has to be, has to be uh, accounted for a million years from now? Why is it not waste from manufacturing solar panels? Why is it not non-recycled windmill blades? Why is nuclear the only one that has to worry about what happens to the future? I'm not advocating to stop development of hydroelectricity or solar panels. What I'm trying to do here is to point out that every power source interacts with nature and human civilization in a way that can be disruptive and even dangerous for generations to come. Nuclear energy is far from uniquely dangerous killer that decades of lobbying have made it out to be. The more you get to know nuclear, the more comfortable you are with the risks. And this, of course, because I'm a physicist, I'm very comfortable with it. I've, I know what the risks are. I know 
where the dangers lie. I don't feel like it's more scary than any of these other uh, deadly killers of of particulate matter or mercury or uh, sulfur hexafluoride. I mean, I know how to treat these things and which ones are more dangerous in which situations. And in fact, nuclear's track record due to the unequal regulatory burden that it's been shouldering for the last several decades is far better than any other energy source in terms of deaths per kilowatt hour. If we want to have the most rational energy policy, nuclear should be holding the banner for the energy transition. Thank you for listening to me. I hope you enjoyed this. Tune in again next time. If you'd like to follow up with more in-depth discussions, please come find us on Facebook at The Rational View and join our discussion group. If you like what you're hearing, please consider visiting my Patreon page at patreon.podbean.com slash The Rational View. Thanks for listening.